Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Right, here we are then, in uh, Sunny Cows on the Isle of Wight, and I have to confess that uh, my next guest I have slightly messed around. Uh, I've been trying to meet up with this guy for quite a few weeks and consistently letting him down. He's grinning politely next to me, but he's probably uh, fuming under it all. And finally, I tracked him down to my very own hometown of the Isle of Wight, and uh, yeah, very pleased to be joined by Ray Fook from the Isle of Wight Festival. How are you doing, Ray? Hello, doing fine, thanks. Just been to a book launch at the um, at the 60s venue in Cows High Street and um, great to meet up with you here afterwards. So uh, we were kind of trying to meet up in your home hometown of Oxford and um, we found out that you were going to be on the island today just as I was getting off the ferry. And so t- tell me what you've just been to. Well, it's, it's a launch for the celebratory event for this year, this August, to commemorate Bob Dylan's 50-year anniversary playing at the Isle of Wight. Um, and coinciding with that is a book by my publisher, Medina Publishing, uh, Bob Dylan at the Isle of Wight Festival, 1969. So it was really all about the launch of the book and the event, and a lot of people there had a great time. So you're just kind of casually dropping it in there that in 1969, Bob Dylan um, came over to the Isle of Wight, but you were the promoter, you and your brothers. You put on this amazing festival. It was the second year of, of the Isle of Wight Festival, the original Isle of Wight Festival, and you managed to coax Bob Dylan over here, and it's, that was 50 years ago. How, do, how does that feel now? feels like it was an awfully long time ago, <laughs> but... Um, yeah, I mean, it's a great, a great moment in, in my memory, obviously, to, to have achieved that. And, you know, I have to say from the outset that it was more like good fortune than, 
than great skill or, or talent on our part. <laughs> we were just in the right place at the right time, and I guess we had the the nerve to try and go for it in the first place. But it fell it, it fell into our hands, you know. And in fact, it, it it was completely by chance that it fell into our hands because what we didn't know was going on at the time in the summer of '69 was this guy by the name of Michael Lang that was in the process of putting on a festival in Bob Dylan's hometown of Woodstock in, in upstate New York. Um, Bob Dylan's management was um, had, had two main people. There was Albert Grossman, there was Bert Block. Albert Grossman had fallen out with Bob Dylan. Bert Block was the only person who could talk to Bob Dylan. Albert Grossman would have wanted D- Dylan to do Woodstock. Um, Bert Block was very happy to talk to us and could talk to Bob Dylan. And I suspect that's why we got Bob Dylan and Woodstock didn't. So hence the title of my book, Stealing Dylan from Woodstock. But um, it was a momentous thing and it was great good fortune that it came our way. Well, I mean, don't be modest. Um, I think, um, you know, you just mentioned the, the name Michael Lang and, you know, your your name, Ray Fuchs, should be up there and, and is, in in my opinion, with, with the Michael Evises and the Michael Lang from Woodstock because you you kind of set the benchmark very early for festivals. You know, you're saying it's 50 years ago, but if you go through the, the three um, Isle of Wight festival lineups from 68, 69 and 70, uh, it's just unbelievable talent on show. Um, just before we go back into the Dylan story, because I do want to... Um, get, get back into that but let's go back to 68 which was the first one and am I right in thinking that was about 10,000 people? Yes it was about 10,000 it was started it was really my brother rather than me that got that started he got a, a job as a fundraiser for to get a swimming pool in the Isle of Wight there was no indoor swimming pool and he was taken on as a part-time fundraiser I started helping him with it and then the charity pulled out they didn't like the publicity about drugs and sex and rock and roll and everything so they we carried on, made it our own, and it was a one-night event. It was designed as an all-nighter. It didn't start till late in the evening on Saturday. It ran through till sort of six in the morning or whatever. It was like an all-night party almost. And why did you choose the Isle of Wight? Well, we lived in the Isle of Wight. There was a, we were doing it on home turf, as it were, except that the, the site we had was completely unsuitable. I mean, it, I mean, you're a best of a man at Robin Hill, but this was at God's Hill. I mean, you could not get a worse place to find or get to in, um, on the island you know coming from say Ryde or Yarmouth I mean it was like a real trek to to get to it. Uh, okay but so, so setting the scene you know 1968 obviously we're here we are sat in 2019 you've got four or five different ferries servicing the island you've got taxis and you know big infrastructure 150,000 people living here but in 68 what was what was the kind of infrastructure when you know were you expecting 10,000 people? We were hoping for more than that um, we needed, I think mean, 10,000 was about the break-even figure, and we did break-even. But, um, you know, we could have done with another 5,000 perhaps to make a decent profit. It, it was, uh, the infrastructure was not a lot different to what it is today, and the bus services are pretty hopeless. I don't know what that says about the Isle of Wight. Well, big, <laughs> I mean, the Isle of Wight, I mean, you've got these country roads, there are no motorways on the Isle of Wight, or big roads or anything, it's the same old country roads that there were 100 years ago. The southern vectors were, you know, running their same sort of services they do today and to get from Ryde to God's Hill you had to go via Newport so it's quite a trek to get there and thankfully by the time the event took place Southern Vectors did yield and stopped putting on extra buses at first they said they wouldn't but then they did run some buses direct to the festival and so for that first one in 68 um, it was £1.25 to get in is that correct? That is, that is correct 
And was I mean, was that a lot of money at the time, or was that? Uh, well, I think I think you need to multiply these figures by by twenty. Okay. So so you really. What are we doing at twenty five pounds? Okay, and um, and so Jefferson Airplane headlined along with um, Arthur Brown, the Pretty Things, T Rex in the Tyrannosaurus Rex original kind of uh, guys and Fairport Convention. Yeah, it was a decent lineup. Although most most of the acts were not known to me. I mean, I'd never heard of Jefferson Airplane. Um, I don't. I don't think I've heard of. Any, I'd heard of Arthur Brown because he was another piece of good fortune he was just getting to number one in the charts to coincide with the event so that that was a, a big boost and of course in retrospectively jefferson airplane i could see that they were quite important um i'm not sure how many tickets they sold for us there because we really didn't bring many people across from the mainland and you know out of white people will go to a thing like this they're limited in numbers you know so you're not going to get a lot of support from the island people and and so you know, did you have a big fence around it? Did you have police there, and you know all the things that we have these days? No, we didn't. the The fence around it consisted of polythene, black polythene sheets on on sort of a few posts here and there. And but there was there was the makings of the festival security of nineteen seventy was born in sixty eight, because there was a kind of a no man's land that was just divided defined with a piece of string on on a few posts about waist high which was patrolled so nobody could ought to cross that pit so that was the security so of course in 1970 we built two proper walls which then worked against us because people didn't like the being hemmed in well they didn't like the look of a prison camp really Mm. yeah yeah okay so i mean just touching back to 68 before we get on to the the next two years um you know the festival market as such in in the uk at that time this was kind of when glastonbury was probably still the pilton pop festival or jazz festival or whatever it's as it started out um there there can't have been many festivals on i'm not sure there's anything at glastonbury yet no the first glastonbury festival was 71 okay and that was a a small festival, not Michael Evers's festival. He, it was his land, and Michael Evers didn't do his festivals for another ten years. So that first seventy-one festival was born in the car park of the Alabite Festival in nineteen seventy by Arabella Churchill, and th- those two decided they were going to go and do a festival and do it properly because they thought the Alabite nineteen seventy was no good because we were charging people to get in, we weren't giving out free food, you know, what sort of festival is that? And so they went up, and of course they, they got through all their money and they couldn't repeat it. No. So, sorry, we're digressing here, talking about Glastonbury. But, um, but so, so in 68 so, there was no festival there, there were, scene? There were other festivals. That there'd been something at, I think it was Woburn Abbey, and I think Hendrix had played Woburn Abbey that, that summer. But they tended to be just one-day things. They may have, of course you had the Bewley Jazz Festivals, which were went on for several days but I think the the point about the Isle of Wight was that being on an island it helped design what was going to happen next for festivals because our fans couldn't get home at night so we had to provide camping and this was the birth of the the big scale camping festival and it was also the Isle of Wight that forced us to look to Bob Dylan in 1969 needing to have somebody who's strong enough to bring them across the water yeah. Had we not been on an island, we wouldn't have had that problem. I, I know that very same problem. Well, you right. would. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so so fast forwarding to to sixty nine, you get you get through sixty eight, all goes well. You've got ten ten thousand people there, but you need to attract some more people. Um, Bob Dylan um, has had a bad motor 
cycle crash a few years before he lives in woodstock itself where this guy michael lang is putting on coming together with this idea of this woodstock festival that no one really knows about and they don't get it and you get it how did how did that come about well we didn't know that this was going on in woodstock of course um there was a battle going on inside the grossman management where dylan and grossman had fallen out Bert block his partner was able to talk to bob dylan and I was talking to Bert Block. And so we had this kind of regular phone call, trying not so much trying to persuade Bert Block. Bert Block wanted Dylan to do it, and we, we found ourselves more or less on the same side. And I guess Bert Block knew that Dylan didn't want to do Woodstock. He, he and Grossman desperately wanted him to get him back on stage. He hadn't worked for three years. He'd had the motorcycle accident in 66, and they saw the Isle of Wight as being a good kind of opportunity Dylan himself was described as wanting to go off somewhere else and do his own Woodstock, which was, of course, in the Isle of Wight. Yeah, yeah. And so we were, we were just really fortunate that all, all that was happening at the same time. And so, and so without being patronising, but just because some of the people that are listening to this will be kind of, will have been born practically with a mobile phone on their ear. So <laughs> in, that, in those days, you know, this was like, you were a pre-arranger, there's no emails, there's no social media, there's very old-fashioned telephones that you pick up and dial around the numbers with your, with your finger. And so you're doing all of this, um, you know, and then saying, right, let's speak again next Wednesday at five or whatever. Well, I'll say a couple of things about this. In, in the first instance, my brother Ronnie... Who was, he was the one that was hell-bent on getting Bob Dylan. I, I'd barely heard of Bob Dylan, which is shocking to admit. But Ronnie was convinced that Bob Dylan was the guy who could bring people across the water. He made a trip from the Isle of Wight to Charing Cross Road in London to find some underground newspaper he'd heard about that had an article about who Bob Dylan's manager was, because we didn't even know who the manager was. And it was only that way that we found out who the manager was. Now imagine trying to having to do that today i mean nowadays you go on the internet and you'd find these things instantly <laughs> so he had to make a trip to london to find out who the manager was <laughs> secondly when i started talking to to um bert block um i mean i'd i'd never been abroad before you know i didn't have a passport nothing i think looking back it was probably the first time in my life that i'd, I'd ever even spoken to an american because <laughs> i can't think of any american i'd ever had cause to speak to before that and suddenly you're on the phone to Bob Dylan's manager. And also in those days, the way it worked, it, it was a lot easier in those days because not many people had telephones. I mean, obviously no mobile phones, but people didn't even have landlines unless you were quite wealthy. You know, if you're a solicitor, obviously you had a phone. But only, only professional people would have a phone at home. Otherwise, you'd have to use a phone box. So the, the important thing about that is that people like Bob Dylan's management weren't being plagued by people on the telephone. Right? The, you know, the telephone was a rare thing. <laughs> and when, when we called New York, and this is a really interesting bit, you made a person-to-person -person call. So you'd hear the operator say, I have a person-to-person -person call from Mr. Burt Block from Ray Falk. And he'd just put through to him, just, just like that. And he would do the same back to me. You'd hear them, you, he, he would make a person-to-person -person call to me. So you weren't paying for time until you got the person on the line. And his international calls were quite dear in those days. <laughs> So, but it, it was a good way of getting through to somebody. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. This is Rob DeBank's A to Z of festivals. Subscribe now and please remember to rate. Um, so... Let's, yeah, we'll touch again on Dylan, obviously, because that was, you know, one of the main reasons that the uh, festival became so so big. But you also had on the lineup Free, Joe Cocker, Richie Havens, uh, the Pretty Things. You had uh, King Crimson, and you had in the crowd. This is my favourite bit: John Lennon, Ringo Starr, Keith Richards, Yoko Ono, Charlie Watts, Eric Clapton, Liz Taylor, Richard Burton, Jane Fonda, and Elton John. Almost right. I don't think we. I don't think we did have Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. People talked <laughs> okay. about them, but apart from that, that's correct. And in the lineup, you missed out the Who. They were headlining on a Saturday. I did. I did miss out the Who. Apologies <laughs> to the Who for uh, that that gross uh, error. So, I mean, did you did you meet all of these people? I'm, I'm sure you weren't hanging around to meet them, but you know, just as they you know organised how they were getting in, and did you, you know, did you meet Elton? No, I didn't. Well, Elton John was there as an ordinary punter. He, mm. wasn't, he wasn't there as a backstage, he was in the audience. And somebody spotted him, and, or spotted a photograph of him later. Um, I didn't generally hobnob with the artist, no. I, I did spend a lot of time with Bob Dylan, because that was kind of my thing. I, it was me that booked Bob Dylan, and I was dealing with Burt Block, and I happened to go there every day to his holiday home and make sure everything's all right and deal with lots of issues. and So... So where, well, did, where did he stay on the Isle of Wight? He stayed in Benbridge at Fallon's Farm. Um, and he, he was there for the best part of a week with his wife. Uh, George Harrison immediately arrived to, to stay there as well. The Beatles arrived on the day of the concert. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was... Um, and the Beatles at that time must have been absolutely megastars. Well, they were. I mean, although we didn't, we didn't have Paul McCartney there. It was the three of them... Only, only three. Yeah, only three of them. <laughs> no, they, they were they were absolutely in their prime. In fact, George Harrison arrived with an acetate of Abbey Road, which he'd finished that week, like the day before, and he played it to Dylan and the band. Um, so that was that was oh, how that big is, it was. That, that is that unbelievable. Abbey, Abbey Road had just come. So you can, you can imagine how big the Beatles were at that point in their career. And also, there was already talk about them 
splitting up and this would be uh, possibly the last album, that sort of talk. So... I mean, that must have... I know that yourself and, you know, me, we, we don't hobnob around and just lig around trying to meet famous people backstage, but ultimately it was your festival. So, you, you know, you, you, were the, you were stood there while George Harrison had this acetate and you've got, you know, all these megastars wandering around. Was it, you know, did it feel like that or was, was it kind of more down at heel? I think it was beyond the kind of threshold of, of feeling anything, you know, beyond normality. It... I, I was just trying to do a professional job. Did, I, did it feel like you were sort of creating history, though? I mean, you know, the, the the news must have been out by now that obviously Dylan was doing you guys and not Woodstock, which must have been by that time a massive story in America. No, it wasn't because people didn't know about Woodstock at this point. Okay. I first heard about Woodstock a week before the festival when Bert Block told me about it. He said they've had this terrible problem upstate New York with a festival that went wrong. He was describing it to me. 500 people taken to hospital, bad acid, terrible weather and all these problems. And, and of course, all the highways were chock-a-block and people just abandoned their cars and walked and left the roads all unusable. So the emergency services couldn't get in. And Bert Block was coming up with all this stuff, really worried that we could have the same problem. But I, I assured him that that wouldn't happen because we're on an island. And in fact, that was a huge advantage for the Alawite festivals, that we did not have traffic problems. People didn't think about bringing their cars over. They couldn't. No. And and the ticket price by now had gone up to £2.10, shillings, so that's going to stop some people. <laughs> well, it was, I guess that was £2.50, you'd say. So that's like um, 50 quid now, we're up to. But that's to see Bob Dylan and have the whole weekend. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm joking. Yeah. That is obviously the yeah. bargain of the century to see Bob Dylan and the Who. And so that year, um, approximate attendance, 150,000? Probably about 150 for that for that year, and it was um, pretty massive for Wooten to put up with that. Yeah, I mean we're now sat probably about seven or eight miles, maybe ten miles from Wooten, but it's a very sleepy, um, you know, back not backwards place, but a very sleepy place out the back of Ride and very unassuming. So to have 150,000 people descend on that must have been quite a scene. Well, it was, and and the site, although it was in a on a farm outside of the village. They had to walk down lanes that would pass people's houses to get there. And, you know, I dare say there was a nuisance factor. There must have been for people living along there. And there were complaints afterwards, as you might imagine. So we couldn't really go back there. I mean, and what was it, sort of complete carnage? Um, you know, like just from people actually, you know, dr- you know, litter and people no, like a, sleeping on, in no, fields. and. No, there's no carnage. It, there's a lot of littering, obviously. Um, people peeing in gardens and that sort of thing would cause offence. I mean, there's stories about people, you know, using the churchyard as toilet and that sort of thing, which may have happened. But I'm not sure that it was on a big scale. There's really no evidence of, of any problems at all. Mm. It was a very, very peaceful event. And, and, what, and what was Dylan's actual performance like? Well, first of all, people were very unhappy with his performance because it was only one hour and they'd been expecting a lot longer. And we kind of, we'd probably helped hype it up that there could be a jam session with the, with these other artists that you mentioned, the Beatles and Stones and people, um, <laughs> which, which Dylan himself had actually indicated he'd love to do that. And so we, we ran with that with our publicity that this could happen. Well, of course, Dylan comes on, he came on late, which is partly our fault, partly his people's fault. Um, and he only did an hour. 
sounds exactly like pop stars these days. Turn up, get well paid, turn up late and then go on for an hour. I think Dylan was only ever going to do maybe an hour and a quarter anyway because he, he had his, his list of songs that they prepared um, and I think there were about three songs he didn't do. Mm. But so, I mean, you know, apart from people being a bit peeved it was short, the crowd reaction was great? Crowd reaction was fantastic. Um, I think the press, the tabloid press, um, really criticised him for the shortness of the performance, which is totally unfair. Um, the Sun, I think it was The Sun or the, or the or the Sketch, one of those tabloids, it wasn't The Sun, I don't know, it was The Sketch, had a headline saying, Dylan... Dylan quits in midnight flop, something like that, which is totally ludicrous. Um, the audience loved it; and they just wanted more. And they was really cheering from cheering, and he left the site before they stopped cheering. You know. Um, I mean, can you actually, in your mind's eye, be back there now, fifty years? I, ago? I can because I had the great privilege of, of a seat in the wings on the stage, along with his wife and my wife and Ronnie and his wife and the manager, sort of all in this line of seats that were specially set up. And the stage in those days um, was like a festival today with lots of liggers about on the stage. <laughs> but, but for Bob Dylan, it was sealed off and nobody was allowed on stage, apart from this row of seats of ours and the performers, and that was it. And so there was a sense of privilege of that. And watching the show from the side like that I was, you know literally three or four yards away from him um i was also able to see out over the sea of audience and see the faces of, of all the um well you know it's like when you look at the the audience from the stage it's fantastic isn't it and they were loving it yeah and I, I mean when i i mean we'll get on to 1970 in a minute and the huge crowds there but you know even 150,000 people is is vast and you know up there with glastonbury of of now nowadays so um, you know, this, the sound system, How did that actually cope? You know, is the sound enough for the, that amount of people? I think the sound was good. I think it was a state-of-the-art of its day. It was done by Charlie Watkins of Wem, um, who did all the sound for the big groups like The Who and Pink Floyd, everybody. So, yeah, I think I think they did they did well on the sound. And, and the same in 1970... I don't think the sound could be criticised on either of those events. No, no, I, I was just curious as no, to, you know, even even in 2019, when we do our best with the sound, we still get complaints, oh, it's not, it's not loud enough, and you just think about 50 years and wonder whether the technology was there to cover that much space. I think it was, and I think I think the site was good for the sound. You know, the site, the, the, the festival site, was um, a good shape and worked well for acoustics. Mm. So I think we we're fortunate on that. OK, so let's... Um, let's Fast forward again to um, 1970, which is the one that, you know, when people talk about the Isle of Wight Festival, then maybe, rightly or wrongly, they kind of come back to this one because um, the price, £3, the uh, staggering price of £3, um, but then it was the crowd, really, and so people say anything from 600 to 700,000. I think you're a bit more conservative in your estimates on that. I certainly am, and those figures would get so hyped. I don't know what the figure was, um, my my take on it has been that you can see from the aerial photographs that we had a bigger crowd than Woodstock, which is usually said to be 400,000, which I think itself is probably hyped a bit. Um, we probably had 250, 300, something like that, I would think. Oh, don't, don't dispel the myth, though, Ray. We love the fact that 600,000 people came to the Isle of Wight. No, I know we do, but, <laughs> but I get embarrassed by it. And I have some people come on to me, you know, picking up on that point, and I've never made that claim myself for that reason, because there are, there are people around that... 
you know, object to that sort of exaggeration. Yeah, sure. I mean, it has reached totally mythical status, whether it was 300,000, 600,000. It was, it was the one that just went beyond, you know, went, you went from 10,000 to 150,000 and then to whatever it was, 300 yeah. plus. And, you know, you had Chicago, The Doors, Hendrix, um, Joan Baez, 10 years after Donovan, Joni Mitchell, Leonard Cohen, Sly and the Family Stone, you know, the, the sort of 70s absolute cream of the crop. Um, and it went, you know, it didn't go wrong, but it, it had, it, it just sort of got out of control, didn't it? No, I wouldn't say it got out of control at all. That, 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 there's a myth about this that's going on that, that my books have attempted to correct. Um, that going over the history, I've got a couple of minutes on this. The Woodstock Festival was only known widely because of the film the Warner Brothers blockbuster that came out in the, in the summer of 1970 um, made the thing into you know, kind of a world-renowned event. Without that film, it would have been forgotten by now. Meanwhile, and, and of course that film celebrated the festival despite all the problems I mentioned earlier, when we brought our film out, which in fact didn't come out till 1995, 20 years late, 25 years later, Murray Lerner, the director, um, had contrived to use the film to show a lot of conflict. You need a drama, and you only get drama out of conflict. And he tra- he trashed the event, basically. Instead of celebrating the event, he trashed it. And since then, everybody that writes about the Alawite Festival, they pull out that film and think that's, like, good history. And I'm just adding to that myth. I, d- I didn't no, mean no. it got out of control in, in a, any sort of violent or nasty way. I, I just meant that many people at a show where... It maybe wasn't built for that. I mean, well, it, it did get out of control financially. I mean, we we lost our shirts on it, and you know that was, you know, it was a financial disaster for us. In terms of the event, though, the event ran beautifully. I mm. mean, we kept going for five days and nights, and although the show ran late on the on the Saturday night and and Sunday night and went all night, you know, till till dawn the next morning, that was a thing that was out of control in a way, and that was because artists were wanting to play longer than they were supposed to. You know about that. Um, <laughs> and apart from that, though, the show kept going and everybody was fed and, you know, all the toilets kept going. You know, it, it was a very successful festival. So did everyone that turned up manage to get into the actual festival? Well, no, but what happened was that the, the festival site at Afton, where the 70th event was held, was at the foot of Afton Down. Now, Afton Down is a sort of... A huge hillside which was owned by the National Trust we were contracted to wall it off now we wanted to wall it off for our own purposes to stop people having a free grandstand <laughs> the National Trust wanted to protect their land and the golf course on top well before the fe- long before the festival started we had radical elements there they kept tearing the wall down that we were building around the hillside now the festival site itself had a double wall around it and it amounted two miles of wall um, which was pretty well intact throughout the entire thing right up till the final evening it was the hill it was a hillside wall that caused a lot of aggravation mm. and people tearing that and in the end we gave up and that hillside became a free grandstand so we had all the kind of problems of not only people just arriving and watching it for free even people who bought tickets were then selling their tickets cheaply in the car park and going up on the hill. So people that would have bought tickets were buying these tickets we'd already previously sold 
and so on. So we we we, lo- we lost out financially enormously because of that. Mm. No, I mean I I, I um. I love the fact that uh, I, well, I'm very lucky that I live about five five minutes drive away from there, and I'm actually learning to paraglide at the moment on on Afton Down. So <laughs> I sort of running up and down with a parachute strapped to my back, where Jimi Hendrix played, and where all these hundreds of thousands of people sat and watched, whether they'd paid for a ticket or not. So I absolutely salute you guys for for what you did there and what you achieved. Um, I mean, we're running out of time because we're actually sat in my car. If I remember, remind the listeners, and your your ferry is is going to leave imminently. So, I mean, firstly. Yeah, congratulations on all, all your achievements and do check out um, Ray's book, uh, the new book, Bob Dylan at the Isle of Wight Festival 1969, which Bill Bradshaw has written, but with in association with Ray, um, which is an amazing book. Coming up to 50 years this, aug- this August. Yep, 50 yep, years this August. 50 years this August. And Ray's other book, which is Stealing Dylan from Woodstock. Yeah, yeah, which is a, which is also a brilliant book. So, just quickly, Ray. I mean, festivals twenty nineteen. Um, you've always been very kind about my shows. Don't let's not talk about mine. But you know, w- what do you think about the UK festival map that you helped kind of create? Well, I think festivals have become, you know, quite ho- quite high quality productions these days. You know, and you can't criticise them for that. They they're fantastic entertainment, but. It's not the festival that has a problem, it's the culture that we live in. And in the 60s, when we were doing our thing, we, we, were, we had a pilgrimage, and it was a pilgrimage of people coming to the festival, people who were kind of half opting out and thinking about how they can make the world a better place and how they didn't want to just slot in and sell out, you know. But all of that is gone now, and, and so the festivals now are primarily about entertainment. And as I say, there's nothing wrong with that, but they're not the kind of pilgrimage they used to be. Nice. So, as a, as a person who was a, an old campaigner from my teenage years and things like the CND, um, you know, I, I regret the fact that the 60s counterculture didn't keep going for longer and, and we could do with it now with the world as it is. Very, very wise words. I mean, I was going to say that these festivals were the original counterculture movement where people were opting out and, you know, rebelling and showing that there was another way of of being and living so um yeah inc- incredible achievement to have created those and yeah I, let's um let's see what happens in uk festival and maybe we can recreate some of that <laughs> this is rob de banks a to z of festivals subscribe now and please remember to rate Get everything for your next roofing project at Menards. Your roof is the first line of defense against the elements. Owens Corning Shingles are designed to offer long-lasting performance while providing ultimate protection. They have a limited lifetime warranty and up to a 130-mile-per-hour wind warranty. Choose from over 40 options designed to protect your home for years to come. Save big on Shingles at Menards. And don't forget to check out our weekly ad on Menards.com. Save big money at when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. 
Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. On Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.